We are going to continue in the series today of Luke, what we call series called Radical Love. And we're coming to a close of this book. And some of you wags out there might say, because we've been in it for about 10 months. And some of you folks out there who like to uh, jerk my leg a little bit will say, come on, guys, 10 months to get through one book of the Bible. Well, there's like like 50 others or something like that. How many more are there in the Bible? 65. Look at these middle schoolers up here. They know it. All right. So 10 months to get through one book. Well, it's important. We believe here at Vineyard Christian Church, it's very important to understand your Bible because this is how God speaks to us. One of the ways that God speaks to us. It's a key component in the life of a Christian. So we have gone through it. Pastor Brian has made a determination to go through it chapter by chapter every week. And we took a couple breaks to do here and there, but it's taken us some time. And uh, we want to get into the Word of God to better understand who this creator of the universe is and what he has for us to learn. Back in the middle school, uh, Jim and I teach the, uh, the young people about, uh, right now we're starting a, a uh, we've started a series of the basics And right now we're talking about God's word, a basic of the Christian faith, how we got the Bible, how we can trust it's real and how we can use scripture in our everyday lives, whether you're a middle schooler or eventually as they go into their adult years. One of the verses that the middle schoolers, I'm sure, know by heart is 2 Timothy 3.16. I'm going to read it because I don't want to get it wrong. All scripture, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. OK, so we think the Bible is extremely important to the Christian faith and the Christian walk. All that being said, you should enjoy the fact that your church loves the Bible. Right. I've seen almost all this. Uh, presenters up here, it's always about the Bible. We're not talking about political things like I did this morning a little bit. We're not talking about uh, uh, geography. We're, we're talking about the Bible. And we want you to get into it so you can understand who God is, understand who you are in his life, in his life. He loves you radically. And what and he has a plan for you. That's why we encourage bringing the Bible with you. We have some Bibles up here. If you forgot your Bible today, you can uh, um, come up and take one, which would be awkward because you'd have to come up and take one. But please do. Oh, you went the wrong way. (laughs) But uh, it's a loner. You can use it. If you don't have a personal Bible, we would love to give you one of these as our gift to you. There's nothing more precious than a gift of a Bible, I think. So let's pray before we get into the word. Heavenly Father. Thank you for giving us a country that allows us freedom to gather today on this Lord's Day to worship you. Thank you for giving us the Bible that we trust is your word written personally for each of us in this room. Lord, we're going to get into the book of Luke today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would come alive so that your word would teach us and change our hearts so that we will be made new. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. All right. We're in the 22nd chapter of Luke. 
And I've said that about three, 13 times, so I'm pausing for you to find it, okay? You know, the first thing you do when you sit down, you should find it, and then just so you don't have to... I'm hearing pages. 22nd book of the uh, chapter of the book of Luke. So we're coming to the end of the historical account that Dr. Luke wrote for us. The Gospel of Luke was written as an account of the birth, the ministry, the life, and the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. The first four chapters of, the, of Luke's book describe the birth and the early life of the Savior, but the bulk of the book, the 17 next chapters, describe in great detail the life and ministry of Jesus. And then now, the last three chapters of his letter begin today, that we're beginning today, describe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. With us studying the 22nd chapter of Luke's work, look, I didn't even turn to it, (laughs) of Luke's work, we come to the end of the story of Jesus' ministry on earth, but really it's the beginning for all of us who call ourselves Christians. Jesus comes into Jerusalem ready to become the willing sacrifice for our sins. We will see today in this chapter that it was not an easy task for our Savior to complete. There are many obstacles that the devil placed in front of Jesus. There are trials that Jesus had to overcome. There are prophecies which had to come to fruition. And there are plans to be made. All of these components are part of the story of Jesus' sacrifice. And all of those, all of these portray the character of Jesus, the man we call our Lord and Savior. So let's begin at verse 14. Luke twenty-two fourteen. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves, which of them might be uh, who would do this? We've seen over the last several months, as we're going through the, the book of Luke, it seems like Jesus is getting closer and closer. As he gets closer and closer to, to Jerusalem and his sacrifice, there's a quickening transpiring. Jesus is healing people. He's teaching. He saves Zacchaeus. He predicts his death to his disciples. He forcefully clears the temple of moneylenders. Rocks are crying out. False teachers are abounding. Parables, teachings, Palm Sunday. Religious leaders are seen plotting to take Jesus' life. He tells his followers that they will have trouble because of him. And he exhorts them to be watchful at this, the final hour. If this were a Hollywood movie, I would picture in my mind that there's a soundtrack of Dramatic music that is uh, building and building in the background, the culmination of Jesus' life. And it's played out in front of us. And as as his appointed hour is coming, it's getting louder and louder. You ever see those movies where, you know, even Academy Awards give uh, 
awards to people who write these scores. But it builds and builds to a crescendo. But here in 22, chapter 22, Jesus hits the pause button, as it were, in order to celebrate the Passover with his trusted leadership. And we see in verse 14 that Jesus says that he eagerly desires to eat the Passover meal with his friends before he turns himself over to the authorities who would kill him. He wants to slow down history a bit and spend valuable time with his friends and his followers. And that as any good leader of of men or a good teacher, he wants to spend one more time, one last time to teach to his his, uh, disciples before he goes. He knows that he will be leaving the company of these men and he wants to spend more quiet time with him. The activity that takes place here in the upper room is considerable. And Dr. Luke's account is not really the most detailed. So I would recommend, and it's in your notes, I would recommend you read later uh, John chapters 13 through 17, where John gives much more detail of what transpired in this upper room. In the culture, when this account was written, there were no drive through restaurants. There were no quick TV dinners in front of the TV Meals took a, a lengthy time, particularly a Passover meal, took a lengthy time, and you'll see that when you read John. This meal was obviously has a deeper meaning as well. Not only was this last meal uh, that he was to have with his friends and compatriots, Jesus is symbolically connecting the current state with the Passover meal. The Passover is the annual celebration of the Jewish faith where they remember the blessings of God who saved the Jewish nation from Egypt. You can read about that back in Exodus chapter 2. It's a fascinating story where God instructed the Israelites to sacrifice a pure and spotless lamb and to put the blood of the lamb around their doorposts so that the Holy Spirit would know that there are uh, children and families of the chosen people inside and they would not be harmed. The Passover is celebrated as a time when judgment of God came upon Egypt in the death of their firstborn when Israel's firstborn were passed over and spared the judgment because the blood of the lamb was posted at the door. Jesus, as we'll see today, would be shedding his blood within the next several days through the sacrifice on the cross. And that now becomes the symbol of our protection, just like the blood was above the door frames. Jesus becomes the substitutionary sacrifice. He pays the penalty for the sins of the people, like the pure and spotless lamb back in Exodus. The lamb's blood spared the lives of the Jewish people. And through Jesus' blood, our lives today as Christians, we are spared. In the Old Testament times, God agreed to forgive people's sins if they brought animals to the priest to sacrifice. The agreement between God and man back in the Old Testament was sealed in the blood of animals. But the blood of animals could not remove sin because only God can remove sin. And animal sacrifices had to be repeated every day, every day, year after year, for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant that Jesus refers to in verse 20 is when Jesus takes the place of the sacrifice. Now his blood would truly remove sins for all who put their faith in him. And Jesus' sacrifice would never have to be repeated. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. That's why in these last chapters of Luke, it's so important to the Christian faith. 
Jesus' sacrifice was necessary because we have sinned against God. We have broken his law, and because of this, a penalty is required. Before judgment is executed on us, because we've broken God's law, Jesus steps in and stops this. And through the cross, he takes the place. We sang about it today. I love these hymns, Michelle, the old hymns. He takes our place on the cross as a sacrifice for us so that we don't have to pay that penalty. And that's why these last chapters of Luke are so important to us. Any mature people who've lived any time in this world can attest that life is not easy. Plans don't go as we uh, planned. They don't go along without a struggle. Frankly, most times there's a struggle in this world. And the same is seen here in the account of Jesus walking out his last days on earth. There are troubles that Jesus encounters which are really timeless. Many of these troubles we encounter today. Luke describes some of the troubles that Jesus encountered on his journey to the cross. We will see in this chapter that both saints and sinners sometimes stand in the way of the purposes of God. Attempt to, I should say. They attempt to stand in the way of God's purposes. You see, God is sovereign. He has a plan. He's called creation into being. The very roots of your hair follicles are numbered, the word says. He created the earth. He has a plan for each and every one of us in this room. And he had a plan and a time schedule upon which Jesus was to give his life for our sake. God uses the thoughts and actions of mankind in order to fulfill his plans. Jesus came to earth in order to become the sacrifice for the sins of the earth. This was God's plan, and God set the plan into motion. At the beginning of chapter 22, uh, the second, 22nd chapter, if you look at verse 3, we see that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who went to the chief priests and betrayed his friend Jesus. Now here's trouble. But this wasn't a surprise to God. God knew that Judas was going to sin. He knew that through the deceit of one of Jesus' close inner circle, it would put in motion his arrest, his trial, and his sacrifice. God allowed Jesus, sorry, God allowed Judas to give in to sin and choose to betray the teacher, his friend, his rabbi. If this had not occurred, then the Old Testament prophecies would never have come true. The sacrifice of Jesus would never have happened, and the salvation of mankind would not have been completed. Sinners attempt to stand in the way of God. Pastor John MacArthur points out that Judas acted like an atheist. He acts like all atheists acts, Mr. MacArthur says, as if there was no God, and they are actually operating in some kind of a vacuum, in isolation from any sovereign divine strategy or plan. The atheist is foolish enough to think that he is in complete control of his choices. The the atheist acts that he can act freely on his own will and thinks he can be in charge of his destiny. Judas thinks he can act in isolation from God's great power. No one acts apart from the sovereign plan of God. Every choice, every act, every decision... Every newspaper article, every win or loss on the, on the uh, field, every human decision, whether it's the most evil, heinous decision like Judas did here, God overrules 
And in his plan, he sets up his own glory and his own uh, plans. MacArthur ends with this telling statement. This is pretty cool. There is not one rebellious molecule in the universe that operates independently of God's purpose. So God, the Bible says, and I believe, is sovereign. He's in control. What Judas did, God used to fulfill his plan. So sinners stand in the way of God. Saints also stand in the way of God sometimes. Look at verse 23. After Jesus reveals to the disciples that one among them might betray him, the disciples sort of lose their heads. And they start questioning the motives of each other in the room. They question their own hearts, perhaps, because they know that they're deceitful. It's bizarre, or maybe just human nature, that here at the culmination of uh, such a massive event, uh, a day before Jesus was to be uh, sacrificed for us, these disciples are wondering about the motives of each other. Hey, well, maybe it's Thaddeus over there. You know, I've seen him look a little different. Wait, have you seen where Peter came from? How about that Philip guy? You know, so these guys are gossiping. And these are saints. These are the inner circle. These are the guys who should know. They saw the miracles. They saw who Jesus was. And yet they're acting like this. So we see in this chapter that one of the trusted disciples of Jesus betrayed his master. It's a plain truth, friends, that we betray Christ on a regular basis. We includes me. But it sounds better I say we. We allow ourselves regularly to walk headlong into sin. We have made promises to the Lord, which we don't stick to. We suppress his name. We don't argue for his sake in meetings. When his name is used in vain... We don't stop the speaker to talk about it. These are betrayals. And I know I do this. If I were in the room with these guys, I would probably question my own motives. So both saints and sinners stand in the way of God to cause trouble, sometimes knowingly, sometimes without malice. The great thing, however, is that God's will is done without any help from mankind. God is sovereign. He's omniscient. He does He goes in the direction he wants to go without our help. Using the stumbles and the fumbles of mankind, like we see here in this 22nd chapter. But he's not swayed by us. He is sovereign. In the Gospel of John, verse 1633, we have the truth expressed by Jesus that in this world you will have trouble. But I, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. The Creator takes dominion over created things. The sovereign power of God weaves every good and evil contingency into his plan, even working through uh, Judas's treachery. No sinner nor saint ever operates independently, as MacArthur says, independently of God. God is sovereign. God takes every act, every choice, and every effect made by every person and weaves them perfectly together for his sovereign plan. That's really a staggering thing to think about because there's more than 200 people (laughs) In the world, there's billions of people. And then you look at over history, how long we've had history. Billions and billions of people that God uses every decision, every act, with all its implications by every human being on the planet, leaving them a certain amount of limited autonomy to make our own choices. He allows us the freedom of choice 
for which they are culpable and overrule all of that so it all comes together to meet his plan. And with all the infinite contingencies, everything ends up exactly the way God designs. This is a massive, massive mind who's mapped this out. I mean, can you, can you see that? It's an incomprehensible power in my small mind. And as a Christian, as a believer in God, it's, st- it's simply staggering to me how large this is. And frankly, it's, it's comforting to me. God is always in control. Nobody in here is not, that's double negative. Everybody in here has had trouble. Even the young people we talk about, we're preparing them because struggle, they're going to have struggles and trials in their life, but everybody has struggles. But it's comforting to me to know that God has put all of this together and he allows us to go through trials, which we'll talk about in a second. Let's continue reading in verse 24. Also, Here's another. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to act like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you. As one who serves, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, again, it's amazing to me what a surreal scene this is. Okay, so Jesus has been teaching these guys. He's been eating every meal with them, sleeping beside them every uh, day for years. And they're just completely forgetting about that. And what do they do? They start arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Pretty much everyone else has abandoned Jesus. The thousands of people have walked away from him, if you look at what Brian's taught. And so clearly this was a tense time. And yet this argument breaks out. Who's the greatest? Luke shows us easily how easily the disciples are distracted, how easily they turn their attention away from the Lord, who has told them in very direct terms that he's about to be arrested, which means put to death. And they're wondering about what they deserve. They've already basically abandoned the idea that Jesus is about to be betrayed, which means death. And instead of worrying about the Savior's plight, they argue with each other about who's going to be the greatest when Jesus sets up his kingdom. How insensitive and self-centered could these guys be? This is one of the most tragic scenes in the gospel story, that the disciples could quarrel about who is greater in the very shadow of the cross. So all the while, Jesus suffers alone. Think about that. Jesus knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He's suffering alone. But no sympathy from his friends. They're arguing amongst themselves. One of them just left because he's going to betray him. And as they talk about who might betray Jesus, they make a transition to a very familiar subject. That is, they start talking about themselves. This is Jesus' inner circle. All right, Compared to my walk to these guys, they should be like really faithful. 
These are the guys who spent the most time with him. He handpicked these guys. And they were squabbling like little girls. Apologies to any little girls in the room. <laughs> but I tell you, it's embarrassing for, uh, for these guys, these disciples. See, now, if I was Jesus, I would fire them. I would replace them with guys who had the vision. You know, guys who were determined as he was. He should have been ticked and full of righteous anger. And yet we see his response in verse 25. Jesus answers the question about who among them is the greatest with the most gentle and gracious response. One that I would not have given. The kingdom of God, Jesus explains, is so very different from the world. The world operates by dominance, dictatorship, authoritarianism, who lord their power over the people they rule. This is seen today in governmental systems, in work environments, in institutions that you might be connected with, like little leagues or charitable organizations. This is the normal way for organizations to act in the sinful world in which we live. When this account was written in the first century, they didn't have democracies. They didn't have republics. What do they have? They had pharaohs, kings, lords, Caesars, Kaisers. They dominated by force and power and threats. And they would rule by fear and intimidation. Jesus teaches, however, that his followers, those who are seeking to assist him, usher in the kingdom, are to act completely opposite. We are to act completely opposite in the world. You are not to be like benefactors, Jesus said, not lording your authority over them. Jesus teaches that the correct form of Christian leadership is to serve one another rather than ruling over them. Again, I would suggest you read the account in the upper room in John 13, where we see that during this private meal, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. You're familiar with that. This is when it transpired. They were shocked that Jesus, their leader, would wash their feet, and some even balked at that. But Jesus was showing to them how a leader in the kingdom of God must act. In God's kingdom, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, to act like a servant. This teaching is so foreign to our culture today. Do you agree with me? Nobody's washed my feet lately. My wife did. Catherine did when we were in El Salvador. American Idol auditions get tens of thousands of people because they all want to be up there on stage. When movie stars and pop singers live high above all the little people. In business environments, it's often dog-eat-dog, kind of claw your way to the top situations. This teaching was foreign to the culture of the time. It's foreign to us as well. Jesus is giving us a radically new way to show his love to those around us, not by pushing our way to the front of the line, but by giving up yourself for the sake of others. At the end of this passage for today, verse 39, turn to that with me. Jesus deals, uh, turns from dealing with the di- disciples to praying to the Father. Let's read 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew to a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, If you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Now, remember the events of the story. Jesus has fulfilled his earthly ministry. He knows that within a day he will be tortured and killed in the most heinous act of cruelty, crucifixion. He's seeking solace from his father. The honesty of the prayer shows the depth and the quality of relationship he has with his father. In the prayer itself, we see both Jesus's agony and his desire to follow God's will, even if it means his life. As the moment of his his crucifixion approaches, all his emotional distress will be laid out in front of the Father on an altar of prayer. Jesus uh, kneels down and prays, asking that if there might be some other way to accomplish what lies ahead. The request is couched in a fundamental commitment Jesus has in doing God's will. Jesus has bracketed, if you look, has bracketed his request on each end with a commitment to God's will. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So both sides of that prayer are are about God's will, and he puts his uh, human will in the middle of that. Here's a very human portrait of Jesus facing his death with a range of emotions. Luke presents us a portrait of Jesus who we can identify Because we have weaknesses and we have traumas. Hebrews 4.15 states this very clearly. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He was tempted. He was frightened. He was lonely. Much of the same emotions we we face regularly. And yet he was without sin. What a great role model that is. Thankfully... We have a great role model. We see Jesus facing a great trial, just like we do every day. We see a man dependent on God and committed to do his will. We see an individual who responds to his trial by turning to God. We see a person who reveals his intense emotions to God in prayer. Everything we see about Jesus' approach models how we should face trials. Jesus is not spared the trial, but he has supplied the strength To face the trial, though he does not hesitate to ask if another way could be found, he affirms his his resolve to do it the way God wants. Jesus takes both his pain and his need to God in prayer. Often when we are the busiest, we neglect to spend time with God and with our needs. Trials might drive us to our knees, but frequently the hectic pace of life that we run on this treadmill inhibits us from praying. Jesus manifests honesty and humility in his prayer. He sincerely desires God's will will not make him go through what lies ahead and honestly shares that. Yet he he's even more committed to being in God's will. His prayer is not just a simple one. He prayers with all his being. So much so that the intense emotion creates Blood to drip out of his forehead. I've never prayed that strongly. This is a model of seeking God's will in prayer. This is how we react. Is this how we react when troubles beset us? When we're in the middle of a trial, do we seek out the Heavenly Father? This chapter gives us a number of character traits of Jesus that I want to bring to your attention here as we close. We can learn from these character traits As we live our lives. First, Jesus was at peace. The government officials and his own people were conspiring against him. 
One of the 12 had rejected him. The other 11 were talking silliness about who's the greatest. They were getting bogged down in little rabbit trails. And he knew that within a day, his place on earth would be, he would be sacrificed as the sacrificial lamb. To take and be put on the cross all the collective sins, past and future, all our sins to take upon his shoulders through crucifixion. And and yet Jesus was at peace. He's at peace during this, the most turbulent time anyone can imagine, because he trusted in God. God is in control all the time. This is where we have to apply to our lives all the time. When things seem to be falling down around our heads, when you lose your house, you're going through a divorce, you lose your job, you get connected, or you get convicted of a crime, you lose that major game, you don't get the scholarship, you're afflicted by some serious disease or illness, when the public debt tops $6 billion, when your child is up at 3 a.m. with a 102-degree temperature, God is in control. We must trust him and build our faith up around that. Look, if you've lived on this earth any length of time, you, you realize that life is tough. You're going to get knocked down occasionally. You will see betrayal and loss and a whole host of trials living in this sinful age. But we don't live these alone. As a Christian, you are called a son or daughter of God. You are blessed with a heavenly relationship with God. Rejoice in that. Cast your cares upon him like Jesus did. Rest in his arms. God will give you peace in your trials. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. When he was in the trial of his life, he spoke to the Father. When he was facing tremendous troubles, he went to his knees and shared his angst, his anguish, and his fears with his Father. He also shared his burdens with his friends. When you're in the midst of a major trial, keeping it to yourself is not healthy. It's not biblical. When you sin mightily, when the world seems to be crushing down on you, you reach out to God and you reach out to Christians that God has put into your life. And if you're a member of the human race, you'll have some trouble into your life from time to time. Let me say that differently. God may allow trouble to enter your life from time to time. Remember, he's in control. He's sovereign. He allows that to happen. And we are to rejoice in this because he is with us during these times. And I guarantee you, as a man who has withstood a number of trials in my life, going through one right now, I, why am we somewhat peaceful in this trial that we're going through right now? It's because we know that God is with us. And we're taking our hands off the wheel to be like that song that's out there. We're taking our hands off the wheel a little bit. Not all the time. We have some rough nights. But God is in control and we just hang on that and we just pray for more faith. And I guarantee you when you come out of that valley, you'll have a stronger faith in the Lord. Second, Jesus is not a victim. God sent him to the earth to fulfill prophecy he had given many centuries before. Jesus came to earth to become a sacrifice for our sins. We cannot go to heaven without trusting that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again from the grave. He fulfilled God's plan of the universe. He was scared. He knew it was going to be painful. He knew that he was going to be rejected. But Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, and he willingly gave his life so that you and I, we, if we confess his name, will live for eternity.
in his care. Jesus was full of love. He loved those knuckleheads. These disciples who were just, I can't think of a better word, thick-headed. He overlooked their cranial thickness. He forgave them the weakness in their sinful behavior. He loved them. And he loves you. And I know I have cranial thickness. This love that Jesus modeled for us should be replicated by us when we're dealing with other people. Especially those who are called brothers and sisters of Christ. Jesus was the best leader. We as Christians are so blessed to have a faith in Jesus Christ. A God and a man who exemplifies the best traits as a leader. He's firm. He's loving, he's consistent, he's loyal, servant-hearted, and he led from the front. He is the king of the universe, he's worthy to be praised, and yet he strived to be the servant to us. He's the servant king. 